you can use it. You could use it. Just, just so get comfortable with it. Yeah. 50. Do you think that many? Yeah. I I was gonna go more like There's half a million downloads. Yeah. That was pretty cool. We had half a million downloads. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. You did a good job on that, dude. Thanks. Somebody should hire you to do marketing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you should say that. Say that again. That was nice <laughs> to hear. Um, okay, so why don't you, DC, why don't you tee this one up with the background? You and I talked earlier about the background for this. Yeah, we're on now. Starting? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you do a welcome? Uh, so let's do a welcome. Uh, this, is, this is weird. No. This is weird yeah, because a, we have the team here, so like I, I have to say cool what I have to say. Now. It's coming in. It's coming later. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. All right, so we have special guests today. We're here in 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 the office uh, with Mike Volpe. Mike is a CMO at Cyber Reason, former CMO at HubSpot, Drift uh, friend, family investor, advisor. So that's who you're going to hear in addition to DC and I today. What's up, Mike? I'm doing awesome. I'm pumped to be here. All right, we're glad we're glad Thanks. you're here. So Thanks DC, tee us up a little bit. What do we want to talk about? There's so much that we could talk about with Mike. Uh, but I want to frame it in a way that uh, will be helpful for us, so selfish, and for the people that listen, and talk about kind of like, since you were the third person in at HubSpot, like your journey from zero to 200, right? And now that same journey that, journey that you're going through right now in zero to 200, I don't think Cyber Reason is 200 people, are they? Yeah. We're, oh, you like, are? we're like okay. 250. Okay, no, 250. Yeah, no. That's okay. crazy. Oh, yeah. my God. But just but in the past 12 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that yeah. Whole zero but to that's zero to 200 people, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. like It's contrast, easy. It's usually like, like six months and just kind of... Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you so you joined you joined HubSpot in 2007. So this actually yeah. is a good story like well it's a good story anyway, but 2007 joined HubSpot at zero and now 2017 you joined or 2016 joined Cyber, Cyber Reason mm-hmm. around the 200 or mm-hmm. whatever stage. Yeah. Um I skipped the hard part. Mm. All right. Well, Smart. so let's 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 <laughs> yeah. let's talk about that first. Like what is what is the hard part? So you you joined HubSpot as as the third, you know, employee and you're there to run marketing. Yeah, like, there were like I mean, I, the only person doing marketing, it was like co-founders and like one developer. Uh, and we actually we had a bunch of we had, uh, we had outsourced developers. We had this guy um, Ivan mm-hmm. out of the Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, that was literally like a little crazy. We, we had we we parted ways with him after a couple months. Uh, we had two guys actually you you probably know these guys uh, yes. two guys in Egypt that Egypt, were like yes. they built like the whole original all, version of the all product HubSpot, like all, it's, it's yeah uh, yeah the part that uh, Patrick Fitzsimmons didn't build yes. they built the rest of yeah. it. Basically, those three guys built all the first version. It was crazy. Uh, so the team was tiny. We had a couple. It was like Darmesh's wife was a customer and like Brian's buddy from his fraternity in college or something was a customer, but like that was it. So it was like, it was just, That's it's, awesome. it's just the first five or 10 customers, as you guys know, is just so hard. Uh, and convincing those people to get on board is hard. Convincing anyone to give you money for something that's brand new is hard. Like that stuff, like the first like zero to a few is like incredibly hard. Yeah. Yeah. What, what were you selling when it was like, we know what it is now, but like when you got those first 10, 15, 50, 100 even customers, like what were you selling? Were you selling inbound marketing? Or were you selling like marketing software that does X, Y, Z? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that so the inbound term came a slight bit later, but we were still selling the same vision. It was it was interesting. It was like it wasn't like we were selling some piece of it and getting people just to buy and love that piece, which I think is a strategy a lot of people do. Our strategy was sell people on the entire vision get them, you know, sell them this product um, and then basically build the product over time to fulfill the whole vision. Because if the vision was, you know, 200 feet big, the early product probably only actually fulfilled 20 feet of the vision. Mm-hmm. And even that was like a little shaky and probably might crash a couple of times a day. So it was definitely like, a, we, we were definitely selling like the big, big vision. And it wasn't even until like really four, five, six years later that I felt like we really had a product that truly fulfilled that whole vision that we were selling. Um, but we were definitely selling people on the vision early. 
what did you what did what did your job look like as marketing? So like obviously the first five ten customers is you know hand to hand on doors, hand-to-hand yeah, literally combat, like Mark like, Robert's literally like would go to like a landscaper's office like knock at the door and be like, hi, I'm Mark Robert. Have you heard of it about marketing? <laughs> the guy'd be like, like no, I cut lawns. They're like, oh, who? Be like, oh, well, you're doing it all wrong. Like, let me tell you how you know you should do marketing to grow changed. your business. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're like, I'll listen to you, sharp sharp dressed man. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean that's the thing. You gotta have a good looking sales guy, which you know which yeah. you guys have now, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big step forward. No, so. Um, uh, you know, my job was to basically figure out how we went. I mean, literally, I remember we used to get, and it was all actually from Darmesh because we had so Darmesh was somewhat famous from his prior endeavors. He had built a company, bootstrapped it, and sold it. We would get one lead a day, <laughs> and that was on the homepage. We had a way to sign up for beta, which is just put in your email address. One person a day would put it in there. It usually, be somebody from outside the U.S. Uh, all G- all Gmail, AOL addresses, like mm-hmm. nothing like zero quality there at all. And that was it. And it was like, okay, how do we get from that to getting, you know, 2000 leads a day that are really good, high quality. And like, that's the like, you know, eight year journey. Um, so in the earlier days, it was just like, how do we get noticed? How do we stand out? How do we sort of build some authority reputation? How do you get people to find us? And there were like two things early on that worked really well. Um, our blog worked well. And so, and I think there were a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons were company blogs were less popular back then, so it was yep. a relatively unique thing. And we had the content was coming from myself and then Brian and Darmesh. So we had like the top people in the company, theoretically, uh, writing the content. All three uh, of the you. Blog. All three, all three, yes. The entire company was writing for this blog. <laughs> all three of us were writing for the blog. Uh, and then the second thing was uh, Darmesh built Website Grader, yep. which is this awesome free tool. Uh, it still exists, although the format now is totally different. I'm actually not a big fan of the way it works now. I think the original, original version is like a old school that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would type in your URL and get this awesome report within a minute or two about your site and what you're yep. doing right or wrong marketing-wise. And that like spread virally, and there were a lot of things I did to like, push that and get that to go. Um, but it was really those two things in the early days that like started us kind of up that growth curve a little bit. You both you did something similar like at compete with the uh, with that right? Like yeah, this we had like- a free tool uh, a long time ago, two thousand six, five, six free tool that uh, people could come in and see how they ranked versus other people. And actually, how I met Darmesh was in two thousand six when he was starting to build website grade and he was looking for data sources. And so we had an API, and so we were talking about using compete data in there versus Alexa data. Yeah. Free, I mean, free tools are awesome, yep. especially if you're a software company. So one of the things we did at Cyber Reason um, starting, we launched it back in December, and there's a free free product we made called Ransom Free, which is like antivirus except it blocks ransomware, which is really nasty stuff that most antivirus can't block. We have some advanced technology that works on behavior algorithms that helps you block it. And we decided for the consumer market just to launch that for free, just for buzz, to get attention out of it. And so we launched that back in December. Only through PR, we got like over 200 PR mentions, PC World, Lifehacker, Gizmodo, whatever. We have 150,000 users of that now. Wow. Uh, just you Why are you going to say stuff like this? I know. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But I got to push you, man. We yeah. 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 All right. So, so you, have, you have this, you have sales team, you have web, free, free tools, that's website creator. At what point did you go from... You know, you you're just blogging and not not just blogging, but you're blogging and creating this stuff to like, 
holy shit, I have now sales to people and we have to start like cranking this thing yeah, up. Yeah, so a I'd say bit. the early part was like Robert's knocking on doors yep. and I was actually selling. I was like, fall all the web leads we got. My job was like, follow up on them and try to give them demos. So and I'm giving like lots of demos. I was like a BDR and a sales rep. Not that <laughs> successful. I did close a few deals, yeah. uh, but not not that many. I think I did lots of demos. I did awesome demos, but I, I was a bad closer. Mm-hmm. Um, were, your, uh, were they PDF demos or real? It's uh, so, so I will say like the first, first, first version of the product. Um, the pages would load so slow that like to do a demo, you'd open up like 15 different tabs in your browser <laughs> and you would like open up drop downs to like show them like, oh, look at all these different reporting options. You'd like open up the drop down, but you wouldn't click on anything because it would take like a minute for the page to load. And yeah. so then and then you quickly like switch to the next tab and be like, oh, let me show you this other part of the product that does this thing. But you wouldn't actually like live show any of it. Right. Um, this is this so, is right up Big's yeah. alley. Yeah, it's no, like his favorite he, thing. He's like, he's like, oh, what's going on? So, um, yeah. But I mean, but again, you're selling people on the vision and all the contracts were month to month right um and so it wasn't like you were locking in people for a long time and a lot of people like at that time the state of the art was a very different place software wise than where we are today Mm -hmm. and state of the art for marketing tools is a very different place so even though the product was a little slow and a little buggy and crashed it was actually tremendously valuable for the right people so um we didn't feel bad about doing it we were doing the best we could it was software was just harder back then so, um, so in the early days, yeah, exactly. So it's so easy now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- DC's gonna, I'm gonna, oh god, the whole, the whole team here is just gonna, you're gonna be grinding people all day off of this stuff. This is, I'm just giving DC material. It's back when it was hard. Yeah. So, so for the first couple, and it was like we, so we basically were selling ourselves. Brian was selling. Uh, Dermesh is an introvert, so he wasn't really selling. Uh, but like basically, Brian, Robert, and I were all selling. Uh, and then once we started to close like a few deals, we started to see like a little bit of a repeatable pattern. Like, okay, when we pitch it this way, people in general seem interested. It seems like they're willing to pay for some of it. I hit up my whole network of like other VPs of marketing at the time and like sold a couple of them. Then we started to say like, okay, it seems like there's, you know, this, the idea and the rough pitch seems like it works. And now we can probably like package that up and give it to someone that is like a professional salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we hired two sales reps. And the first two that we hired were sales reps that had worked for Halligan and had like just sold tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason to do that was you knew if they couldn't sell it, yep. it was a problem with the pitch or the product. Great point. Great right? Point. It mm-hmm. wasn't like it wasn't like I hired a bad sales rep because they had sold like you know iced Eskimos, like all those expressions. <laughs> right? It's like they had done all of that. We did a uh, yeah. yesterday. We did a podcast with uh, Emmanuel Scala. She's a VP of Sales at DigitalOcean, and she used a good example, like which is the early sales reps are missionaries. Right? You just send them out door to door, like whatever it is, sell anything to anybody. That's the whole thing. You know, later on as the company scales, it's more about mercenaries, which is like you know you're here to do a very specific job. It's a repeatable playbook. Yeah, and I think the other thing with the early ones is you want to figure out um, you want to make sure you hire people that are very flexible and adaptable. Yeah. I mean, we were changing the pitch like on a weekly basis. Like, no, 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 yeah. pitch it this we way. never do that. No, no, no. There's, there's a new thing, right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, that's right. So, like, you need people that are willing to adapt to that. And I think if you look at some of the early sales reps, like um, Dave Donlin, who's over at Crayon leaving, yeah. leading sales, he was one. It's like you tell him in the morning, like, okay, today you're going to pitch it this way. He's like, okay, that sounds great. And he would try to sell it like as best he could. Uh, whereas some other sales reps, uh, it takes them like a week or two to kind of get around the new pitch and takes them a while to learn it. They're okay to hire when you're more in that later like scaling phase, mm-hmm. but they're terrible in the beginning. Like in the beginning, you need to be changing it multiple times a day and just figuring out what works. You want them to be like kind of freestyle while they're on demos and come up with things and then email you and be like, hey, I just talked about this thing and people seem to like that. Yeah. Um, like you need that in the early days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you think, like, I'm just, I've just, I made a list of like a bunch of things that you guys did that, 
You notice something here? There's no list. No, <laughs> no notes. No notes. These Amazing. come from a lot of these come notes. from you somewhere. Yeah. Um, so you guys superpower. So you had webinars. You did HubSpot TV. You had a free product. You were on all these different channels. You published a book. You started to do events. Like, do you think you can? Is that a is that a sim? Is there a playbook in there that you can run today, or something? Are, are things changing where like that stuff still doesn't? Well, you know, work. you know, I love playbooks. I know you do. Like everything's like totally repeatable. Yeah, <laughs> you just do you do the same thing, and like it'll always work in the work. same sequence. In the same sequence, uh, exactly yeah. the same way mm-hmm. for every company, every market, and even five or ten years later, it all it all it just all, works, all right? The same. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the, this is I I, I've heard this from both of you separately. Is like everybody in separate scenarios would say to you, "Oh, that that thing that you guys did, like, and it grew." How did you do that? And like they want you to give some like perfect answer. Like, well, on Tuesday at nine AM we sent an email to six thousand people. They clicked it and then shared it like and it never you're you're always just like I don't you've said to me, you're like, We ran webinars and we called people. Like that's literally what we did and that's that's how we got initial traction. Yeah. I, I think um so my view on playbooks is it needs it's like that scene when Neo first goes into the Matrix and he's like training with Morpheus, right? Yep. And uh, and I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. So um, and Neo's in there, he's trying to figure out like, okay, what are the rules of this system? Like, how's gravity work here? What's the things? What can I do? What can I not do? Whatever. And Morpheus beats the crap out of him. And then Morpheus leans over to him while he's there, and, and Neo's like breathing heavy, and he's like, Morpheus just looks at him. He's like, Do you think like the laws of physics apply in this world? This world is all code. Like, it's not the real world and neo's like thinking and the morpheus looks at him he's like do you think that's air you're breathing mm-hmm. and then this light goes off in neo's head and he's like oh right like none of these rules i can bend and break all these rules and morpheus says like some of the rules are meant to be bent some can be broken you need to figure out which ones and so i feel like playbooks are good for beginners to get to a certain point mm-hmm. but it's like the great you know in football the great quarterbacks have a playbook and they have a play but then they walk up the line and be like oh well actually i see the defense now and like we need to do this other thing and like let's audible and that will score a touchdown that way so it's like the best people the best people know what those playbooks are but then you freestyle yeah, off freestyle. of them like they're ingredients <laughs> and that's where you get the best results it's not from like just following these robotic playbooks over and over and my biggest frustration with marketers is just like people that want this checklist of things to do mm-hmm. and it just drives me insane yep I so love that, that ability to improv right it's like great musician right you get you can be classically great and then to become a great improv musician is a whole different level right yeah you can learn the guitar really well mm-hmm. but there's no like checklist of what are the things you need to do to become like Jimi Hendrix, yep. right? Like he's like all freestyle. He's like breaking the rules, and but it works out in a very great way. And it's the same. I mean, you would know more about this, but on the product side, I, it's, I'm sure there's some blog post or some book that's been written about it, like how to design a product and how everything should mm-hmm. work. But if you just follow that, it'll be okay. It'll be average. It'll look like everything else. Yep. But if you want something special, you need to improv. Exactly. That's why there's no roadmaps. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's inside, out there. Inside joke. Good. Yeah, inside that's, good. Joke. that's good. That's good. No, yeah. but uh, so, so the serious part of that is like, how do you, and, and this is even what you've taken now to Cyber Reason and, and HubSpot back in the day. Like if, if you think that way, how do you plan? How do you plan? Right. Cause mm-hmm. like if you're a marketer and your job is like, you have X goal for this, this quarter, this month, I, I know that you prefer to do like monthly planning. Right. But uh, how do you plan then? If, if you can't sales, sales and marketing are always going to want to have like a, a clear number and a goal. Right. But yeah, well, I think goals are different than plans, right? So, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit. And just like I, I understand not having a product roadmap, just like I don't know what I'm going to be doing, you know, launching the first week in December of this year marketing-wise. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. But I do know, I do have a sense of in order to hit the revenue goal we want to hit, what are the goals that we need to hit for Q4 in terms of lead generation and opportunity generation with the sales reps and what our conversion rates need to be. So I think it's good to have goals, 
but then I think you need to figure out what are the things you're doing to go after that goal, those goals in a much more kind of like agile process. Right. And, and we're actually implementing, like I've done this before early on at HubSpot. We were one of the first companies to do agile in marketing. Um, and I know you guys don't necessarily aren't adherence to like agile for software development, but I think some sort of a more rapid kind of methodology mm-hmm. like that is also applicable to marketing. And if you don't really know where to start, agile is a decent methodology to get you going. And then I think after you do that for a while, once you understand again, that playbook, then you can freestyle off of it, which is what you guys have done product wise. Yeah. I think Mike said the magic words in the beginning there. I don't know, which takes like a, you know, career to work yourself up to being able to say that in public. Like, I don't know, but I'll freestyle, I'll figure it out, and I'll, I'll, I'll get there. And I think so many people get caught up wanting that playbook because they're afraid to say that, and they want to be able to say, they don't want to say, I don't know. They want to say, I have a definitive plan for how I get there. Well, and I think that, um, and take that a step further for, like, mm-hmm. CEOs, um, they're looking for the marketing person to come in with the plan <laughs> at the beginning of the year and be like, oh, yes, this is a good plan. If we do this plan, like we'll hit all our numbers. Great. And the reality is you just need to hire. I think it's much more looking to hire people. And this is even you know more junior people in your team, people that are willing to learn and teach themselves things, mm-hmm. people that have a lot of persistence and people that like to be measured by, you know, me- by metrics, by goals. Right. Yep. And I think if you find people that have those three characteristics, they're always going to be growing and improving versus somebody that's going to, again, come in and sort of like just be like, oh, well, here's the playbook, and be like, well, why are we missing our goals? Be like, well, I'm following the playbook. I don't understand why, and that's just the wrong way to think about it. Do you think the way that you hire, the things that you look for in people has changed between HubSpot and Cyber Reason? Um, I, I hope not because I think, um, I think those things really – work across different types of companies. I mean, I think there's maybe some, like for the experience, like I'm more open to people that have a little bit more of an enterprise experience at Cyber Reason because our deal size is 10 times bigger than HubSpot's deal size. Mm-hmm. We have a field sales team. So like there are some things that are different. Like I've definitely looked at candidates from companies I probably wouldn't have given a serious evaluation yep. to at HubSpot. Mm-hmm. But I think those core characteristics of like, you know, it's even somebody that's worked at some big company for a number of years, I want them to display those characteristics that they're learning how to do new things, that they want to challenge themselves, that they want to be judged by metrics and that they enjoy that and enjoy sort of, you know, that sort of competitive spirit. Um, so I think those things are, are mostly the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you feel like product wise it's different for you? No. No. Yeah. no. I think it's the same. Yeah. yeah. It's similar. I mean, I think there's new technologies and new challenges and new companies that you may look like you just said, like new companies may have emerged or new types of companies might be interesting to take people from. Right. Or, uh, but the characteristics are the same. Well, just like I don't think you look for people that are like, oh, do you know this coding language, Mm-mm. right? You're like, no. I don't know. Have you learned a new language, right? Exactly. Have, you, have you done a new framework? Have you mm-hmm. done a new thing? And be like, great, because we, you, know, you might be using whatever the cool thing to use is now, but totally. six months from now, that could change, and you guys could be using something new. You totally. want people that are going to adapt to that, right? Yeah, in every department. Not someone who's like, oh, I'm a Java expert, right? Yeah, in every world. Like, I think, like how much of what you're doing in marketing today, Dave, were you doing a year before you got here? None. None. I mean, it was a different scale, right? Like I, I learned because I had a side project and just like, you know, fucked around with a bunch of things on the side. And then it's like, oh, now you get to go apply these to a business and try to figure it out. But just like one small win after another. And this is something we talk about all the time. It's like, it's really easy to look at a candidate and get caught up on like, oh, they're at this company and they're doing this thing and they look amazing. Then they come in and it's like, oh, I don't know. But then it's also that's also a challenge because then there's the other person who doesn't have a great resume, but might be that next gem. Mm -hmm. Like you both have found a lot of them and you grew a marketing team to 85 people at HubSpot. Like what, how do you, how did you go and find those things? What was your, what was your hiring process to get them? 
I, so I spent a lot of time doing my own recruiting and just a ton of time yeah. meeting people. I was going to say, like, Keith and, I, Keith and I were talking about this earlier. Like, you, I think you, more than any other, you know, especially marketing, but more than any other exec that I've seen, are every time I look at your Twitter feed, your LinkedIn feed, something else, you're always posting about we're hiring or this is why hiring. Like, you, you talk a lot about hiring. But every problem essentially boils down to people if yep. you really really like boil it down and down <laughs> yeah. and down like it's all yes. people right all people. so the more you can be out there and making sure you're meeting the absolute best people mm-hmm. and just always talking to people and either learning from them or getting referrals from them or potentially hiring them like mm-hmm. that's to me frankly the highest and best use of your time as like an exec or a founder or whatever because that's that's like the most important mm-hmm. thing and and you can in the short term solve problems by rolling up your sleeves and doing stuff yourself and some of it's around management leadership and things like that. But but getting the right people just on the bus in the first place is supremely valuable. Oh, yeah. So I spend a lot of time on that. It's, you do too. Oh, it's a huge amount. And it's pattern matching, right? It's some level of pattern matching, which, you know, I was talking to CEO of, a, of another company and they were asking about how to hire a CPO, right? Like a C, chief product officer. And uh, and so I asked, the, asked her, how many, have you t- how many of them do you know? And she said, zero. How many have you talked to? None. Okay. Well... First thing I would do is go talk to as many as possible from big companies, small companies, whatever. Just talk to all of them, and you'll start to get some clues to what the great ones look like and what is average look like and what is uh, mediocre look like. Yeah, you have to go on some shitty dates to probably find yeah. like the right person, right? Mm-hmm. You, I mean, yeah, I, I think the other thing that annoys me about hiring is like some companies approach it like, oh, I'm, you know, I'll hire like a search firm, first yes. of all, right? Yes. And then you're disintermediating yourself from meeting all those candidates and mm-hmm. learning. Mm-hmm. And so I much prefer to just roll up my sleeves and get my hands really dirty in that stuff. The second thing is they'll run this process as if like it's a it's a job that you have to fill yeah. and like the whole company will explode if you don't fill it by X date. And therefore, when you get to X minus 10 days or two weeks or whatever, you just pick the best person that you've met so far and like, Great, we'll hire them. Yes, like you don't like you don't decide like you're going to get married by a certain date to go with you know Dave's analogy like and then you know six months before then well you're the most interesting person I've met so far in my yeah. life like yeah. why don't we get married yeah. that's not the way it works right <laughs> so I think it's I think it's one of those where like don't be afraid to hire really slow and mm-hmm. wait for like the perfect person yeah one of the many ways I used to drive people crazy at HubSpot was uh, because I didn't want to have job specs and job recs because they they did the similar thing to what. Mike was talking about was like then it caused the team and um, recruiters to think that they had an exploding time bomb that they had to hire this person and we should hire Dave. Why should we hire Dave? Because we have this opening. Okay, why? And isn't why that a measure? Right? Isn't yeah. that a measure of companies? Aren't they like, oh, we've had this rec open for oh, yeah. fifty weeks for and, fifty weeks, and yeah. why Dave? Because he meets these three bullets on this job rack, and I say. But I made all the bullets up. Like I made those three bullets up. Like, what does that matter? Like, what is the rationale? Just gets crazy, and as you as your team gets bigger and bigger, like you know, it becomes more crazy. And so it was about what Mike was saying about like, let's let's interview people. Let's find the right person, and we have lots of challenges. We have got to figure out like where they're going to fit on the team. But like this artificial notion that you have to fill a wreck is crazy. Yeah, you should. I mean, you should always be hiring, mm-hmm. and you should always be hiring just like amazing people that you find mm-hmm. not to meet these individual recs. So I, I found job recs can be interesting to like help attract some candidates. Sure. Some people won't sure. apply unless there's like, oh, that yeah. job looks interesting. Mm-hmm. But you're totally right. You, you should see that job rec is not 
um, a role in the company you're trying to fill, but it's an advertisement about why someone awesome should want to come work mm-hmm. at your company. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you should have this discussion on when you're ready to hire them. Like, okay, let me tell you what your job's really going to be here mm-hmm. based on everything I know about you and the things you're awesome at and then what we actually need. And like you pair those up. And that is a very one-to-one dynamic process. Do you think you hire more experienced people now than you did at HubSpot? Because you're at a different stage or a different experience? Uh, I mean, the stage is different here. So I, I mean, I brought in two VPs to come work for me, right? Mm-hmm. Because I came in, the team was seven people. And in the past six months, I've grown it to 15 because we're sort of behind. Mm-hmm. And the company also, company-wide, I think we hired 160 people in the last 12 months or something like that. Uh, so it's, just a lot. Ra- it's a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a lot. And there's a lot of stress that comes along with that and cultural stuff and whatever. But so like the company is growing very rapidly. So I, I needed a couple just like really strong folks that I could rely on to run big parts of the team because we were already getting to a scale that it wasn't like me and like a few people. So um, I think maybe like that's a little different. But I think now that we're shifting our focus to kind of filling out those teams. Uh, no, it's a lot of. It's a lot of yeah. I think it's I think it's a similar stuff. Because yeah. you, you had a lot of people at HubSpot before you had VPs. I mean, you had directors and stuff. But you yeah, didn't. I'd say. I mean, I'd say the the team was probably a little flatter for a little bit longer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. Well, I think that you know you get more willing to kind of take a step back from it <laughs> yeah, the more times yeah. you've done it. Go, right? go into that for a second. What does that mean? What do you mean? Like the team was flatter for longer? Mm-hmm. Like as far as what? Um less like i was directly managing more people and there was like less less of a hierarchical stru- uh, structure maybe uh i mean now i've got three direct reports i'm trying to hire somebody to run our EMEA marketing which would be a fourth person but that's it like all of my work with this 15 you know now soon to be 20 in the next two months like team is like all like through those people and like yeah i talk to people individually i do lots of one-on-ones and skip levels and all that kind of stuff too but you know the key way i get stuff done is talking to those you know three four people that work for me mm-hmm. uh versus i think early on it's like you get your hands a little a little dirtier when you're kind of building from zero to whatever mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. yeah anything else on hiring before we go on i got we could talk about hiring forever it never ends but i think you do an entire podcast series just you, on hiring yeah when i was at hubspot you you were the last interview for everybody Yes. Is that on purpose? I interviewed uh, that did, I was last. Did you? No. no, no did you? That, did you want? I, did you want to be involved? No, I had. A, I had a, oh yeah. I had a rule that I had to interview every single person we hired. And you didn't care. Like this was this. When did you start that day? Beginning? Day one. And I mean, obviously, day one was only me. So yeah. I, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah. Day one, Mike, you got the him. job. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Uh, but even at you know even at eighty five or hundred people, every I did after we got to maybe seventy five, eighty people, I. Um, didn't interview interns anymore, but even up to that point, every single intern before we hired them, I did the people side again. It's the highest and best use of your time, yep. so I spent a lot of time on yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I will say that once we got to be a hundred people, and I had a you know a number of people working for me that I really did trust, and they'd sort of been cultivated their own hiring taste over time and their hiring abilities. It's I I rarely rejected someone, and part of what I did in that final interview was expectation setting. So I was very clear with them of like, this is what the culture is like here. There are things that are good about it. There are things that are bad about it. Like, don't come here expecting it to be easy. It's going to be hard. 
we think hard is fun. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think most people here enjoy working and things like that, right? But it's because it's hard, not because it's easy in a party. Um, and there were a number of things like that, like culturally, that we would just go through and sort of expectation set that I would talk to them about. Um, and then I would also do a follow-up with all new employees about 60 to 90 days in. And I would ask them, like, have there been any big surprises here or is this what you expected? Yeah. And I found that doing that expectation setting in that final interview – then there was almost never any surprises except on the positive side that they actually even liked it better or was even better than they expected or whatever. Um, and I felt like that was really helpful in terms of retention and also making sure the right people come in the door. Because yep. um, you don't want to, like, once people are at that job offer stage, they're inclined to almost, like, accept it versus you kind of want to be in the back of their head, like, don't accept this unless you're really ready to take on the challenges that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should cut that clip and put that as part of our interview process. Listen this? to Mike. Yeah, listen yeah. to Mike for a little no, bit. No, the, I, the, I mean, the part that stood out to me is, like, the the no no bullshit about like this is the good stuff this is the bad, bad stuff, stuff yeah. yeah we were talking about this yesterday like in the other thing that we did which is like in the interview stage everybody's on a mission to get you to give them an offer right like it's a script and it's a play it's like okay i'm gonna get to this next step and so i think if you're if you bring in the realness and say like this is what it what it actually is like to work here that goes a long way in finding the right person yeah yeah i think that's right and it, and it helps a lot with retention too because if people come in with a set of expectations that's different from what it's actually like, you know, because you're right, you're, you're both selling to each other during that process. So it's like you got to get real at the end such that when people come in, it actually is what they're expecting. Yeah. All right. I want to wrap up and, and talk about uh, sales and marketing for a minute and then we'll do Q&A w- with everybody else. Um, are there specific tactical things that worked for you back then 10 years ago that might not work now? You mean and, in, in the yeah, landscape of marketing? It, yeah, sales? like throw, throw out of the company. Yeah, the landscape of marketing says like throw out that it's a cybersecurity company. Just like you know, running marketing today that versus ten years ago. Um, I think a lot of the content and social stuff was easier back then because it was just less crowded. Yep. I mean, I remember at HubSpot, we we were early on Twitter as a company, and we did the like we did this meta Twitter thing. So we did a, a webinar about how to use Twitter for marketing. And we did all of the Q&A on Twitter. And we basically, like, broke everything. It's like we trended on Twitter. We broke the, like, the tweet deck or whatever we're using to, like, read all the tweets. We had to have multiple instances of GoToWebinar running because we had, like, a few thousand people register. It was the biggest webinar we'd ever done. And at the time, like, like GoToWebinar would only have um, uh, a thousand people per webinar instance so we tried to actually run it on three different ones and like direct people to different ones the whole thing just became this giant like shit show basically <laughs> but like the fact that we were early on and this is something else maybe we should talk about but like we were early so like the twitter and the social and like you know the content stuff i think was a little bit easier back then you could have lower quality and more volume and just you could stand out more now it's like it's just a much more crowded space because it's much later so yeah. i think again you got your guys approach i think you guys have tapped into like the less uh, less of it and higher quality, like much higher signal to noise ratio, which is the right way to do it today. You you did start going exactly where I was hoping that you'd go with this. In the just, this is something that is from both of you is like do a lot of things, like have a culture that's open to you know your marketing team. Same thing, uh, have a have a culture that's open to exploring a lot of different things because you have to find you have to be early. Like if you well, look, the, the the first one or two or a couple people that do something get like these gigantic results because we're like wow like look at that thing like that was so cool what they did right it's unique and it's novel and people want to share it because of that and talk about it Mm -hmm. and then like you know the 100th company you know music video you're sort of like well it was kind of funny 
right? Mm-hmm. Where you're not like, oh my god, like look at that crazy thing. So it's like you you just you need to be early in all that stuff. So I think that's why you need to sort of be willing to uh, adapt and try new things and, and be willing to like have these abysmal failures too, which which you know we definitely had. Which is a good way to circle back to the beginning, which is anti-playbook, right? That's the reason, because you, everyone wants a playbook, but by the time you write the playbook, you're the hundredth person. And in marketing especially, you don't want to be the hundredth person in anything, right? Yeah. You need to be early. Cool. Anything else? What do we miss? You're still on the mic and it's I'm hot, still so. at the hot, on the mic. Yeah, yeah. Hot mic, yeah. Um, be careful what I say on a hot mic, right? Is that, <laughs> that's a lesson we've learned in the past year, I think. So, what advice would you give to know. us without any before anybody asks any questions? Like at, at this stage, you know, roughly you know, 30, 35 employees and growing. Like, what do we what do we have to think about for the next six months, year, eighteen months, two years? And I feel like like I know a decent amount of sort of like just from seeing the products and talking to you. Like, it feels like the stage you're at now it's you're very much poised to like grow a fair amount more rapidly like you're getting out of that early like mm, trying to find product market fit to like okay we've got it now we're trying to find the repeatable sales and marketing process mm, you feel like on you're sort of like have that or on the edge of having that and it's like psh, like let's go from there i think now the things to worry about are and it's great that you guys have you know dc and elias and everyone here that's seen that rapid growth before because it's like the cultural stuff I think is hard and like Mm -hmm. the way like you have a certain set of cultural values right now, but the way you bring those to life at 200 or a thousand people, the systems to support that culture need to change in order to keep the culture the same Mm -hmm. and keep those things that you want. Like the way you have this, like always be learning or this like fearlessness or like all those things. Um, and the way you embrace it with 35 people is very, very different than 350 or a thousand. Like that's, that's the stuff that I would, uh, you know, shift the focusing on if I was like, you know, doing something here. Mm-hmm. It's good advice. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. Uh, who's got, anybody got questions? Yeah. I'll repeat, Pete I'll repeat it for our, for all the listeners. What decisions would you recommend putting off as long as possible? I'm not so I, I think it's more like I think it's better to make decisions and move forward but be willing to revisit them. Um because I think uncertainty makes it hard for people to move quickly. I think that for a long time, let's take HubSpot for instance, we had this whole like are we selling to small business owners or are we selling <laughs> to marketers of small companies, right? Mm-hmm. DC's laughing is literally we would spend days debating this. Uh, days of time days, debating yeah. over the course of years. Yeah, I mean, when they both say days, you know how long that actually is. Probably. I know. <laughs> a long time. Yeah, DC yeah. and Mike level yeah. days. It was like a lot. So, um, <laughs> and I think that either of those decisions was a good decision, but not deciding cost you something. Uh, it would have been better. Even frankly, the small business owner was probably the wrong decision, um, and that wasn't the decision we ended up making. Eventually, eventually. But had we made that decision a year or two earlier, we would have, I think, found out that it was the wrong decision and then made the right decision faster than we actually got to making the right decision. Um, so I, to me, it's just like pick one and move on. It's, it's, it's more about speed and adaptability and agility than it is about um, making the perfect decision. I think, we, I think we agonized over making the perfect decision far too often. Totally agree. Sub Leo. Leo. So people say that hindsight of 2020, but I mean, I'm just kind of curious to now, like, if you were to, with the knowledge you have today, go back, would you do anything differently? So what would be one thing that you'd say, oh, you know, this is definitely a, a mistake?
What would you have done differently? Um, I, th- I mean, literally with 2020 hindsight, which is sort of what you're asking about, obviously there's some hires that like didn't work out for whatever reasons. Um, and I wouldn't have made those hires because that's bad for you. It's bad for the company. It's bad for them too. It's just bad all around. Um, so that kind of stuff, if you could be perfect in hiring, which no one can ever be, I think our, you know, I think our results were generally pretty good, but there were definitely a few mistakes we made. Um, that would probably be one thing to sort of revisit. There were a couple like individual things like, you know, dumb things we did. Like, um, uh, there was something that we published on social media or whatever about like, there was some like tsunami thing we did and it was like too soon after the actual like tsunami and like, like a couple of the stuff that we, I mean just like stuff that like we just did that was dumb and it was like an individual person that just didn't think and they just acted very fast. Again, I wouldn't have what I don't, but I, and so that stuff, obviously I'd be like, Oh, we probably wouldn't do that again. Mm-hmm. But what I want to be clear about, and I always try to be clear about with the team was like, this was a mistake, but I'm not blaming you for having done it. It's like, I, I want people to move fast. And like, I want to, you always got to be very careful when you're talking about like not doing mistakes that you're not creating a culture that people are too careful and move too slowly. Mm-hmm. So even a couple things at cyber reason, like one of the things I'm sort of pushing the team to is like move faster, make more mistakes, like do more stuff, ship more things, um, take more shots on goal basically. And there was one time where we did something and like, um, a relatively big potential customer sent us this like flamogram email back about like, how could you ever do this as a stupid marketing campaign? And like, this is such crap and whatever. I'll never buy from you guys, blah, 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 blah. And, um, I took that as an opportunity to show the team like, okay, here's how we should change this. So it's like not as offensive to this person, but by the way, I blame no one on the team for having sent this email out. It, the email actually got a very good response. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, it pissed some people off, but it also actually generated some real business for us. And the overall campaign is good. And so I was like very – like I defended – the person internally who was responsible for that could have been um, crushed by other people in the company or even you know some other CMO potentially. And I very adamantly defended that person and said like, like if you want to blame anybody, blame me. But like here's why we did it. Here's all these things. And like yes, we will change it and move on. Like let's like move forward basically. Um, so I think that again, I would if with twenty twenty hindsight, of course you wouldn't repeat any of your mistakes. But that's very very different than like trying to be perfect all the time because you try to be perfect all the time, you just move too slowly. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Yes, I love that. What's up, Connor? Uh, you talked a lot about like trying out new things. Um, so where do you see like in order like for marketing and spaces get crowded? Like how do you transition out of those spaces? And like what are some new things that you guys are trying today from a marketing perspective? Um, so what was the question? Yeah, yeah. The question was, uh, what new marketing trends has Mike Volpe all excited? Um, <laughs> so it's it's interesting. I'd say um, he's big on Snapchat. I'm giant. No, <laughs> yeah. uh, Snapchat. I, I tried it. I, I truly can't figure it out. <laughs> uh, I tried. I'm getting old. I yeah. Gotta, uh, figure that one out. But yeah. Um, so I'd say a couple things. I think I, I think it depends on your industry. Like within cybersecurity specifically. So for cyber reason. Um, free product is actually a unique thing in that market. Um, and so the ransom free thing we launched, I think part of the reason it works so well is because that's unique. Um, if I was like a SaaS marketing company, it's going to be a lot harder to stand out with a free product because mm-hmm. there's like a ton of those flooded in the marketplace, right? If the product is really good and unique and something new, then, you know, there's an opportunity there, but it's definitely harder. Um, so I think it, it depends a little bit. So like for us, free product has worked really well. Uh, we did just launch a funny uh, video today. We launched an April Fool's product. 
Uh, you can see it on my Twitter. It's called Cyberblast, or you can go to getcyberblast.com. Uh, it offers 100% foolproof protection against cyber attacks mm-hmm. uh, using AI and machine learning. Um, <laughs> so um, that's all it takes. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a cool little product. So I th- and it will and we'll see how that does. Like that's something we launched today, which is again unique for cybersecurity. To do a funny video is not unique in marketing or sales software, mm-hmm. um, right? Because people try to do that stuff all the time. So like. I don't know. I mean, for you guys, I think the I think the being extremely helpful thing works really well. I think trying to create some sort of a movement around a better way of doing things. So, like the no forms thing, I think is awesome. Um, I've told Gerhardt that you guys should just become like the form free company, and you should start like the form free movement and like that whole thing, and have the form free conference and write a book about being form free and all that stuff. Um, so, I think yeah. we all know. <laughs> so um, I think I think that's huge, and I think that could become like your your movement. Um, and so I think that's maybe interesting for you guys. But it's it's hard. It's like you're asking me like what's like the special thing that's coming next, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Alexa. What do you think about that? I love this topic for I you. Know, growth hacking. This what, is like a this soft, is, yeah. soft What do you think about what do you think about growth hacking? So my my personal view on it is like, um, as like a branding and marketing campaign, it was like they did a good job um, <laughs> because like it's worked and it's stuck. And I think for may, the term might have some relevance if you're like a really big, old, boring, slow company because you're like, oh, we need to get to do growth hacking or growth marketing or whatever. <laughs> but I think if you're, but I think to me, it's just like what you're actually describing is just like good marketing, right? <laughs> and it just annoys me that like people are like, oh, we're going to start a growth team. I'm like, well, what the fuck else is the rest of your marketing team doing? Like yeah. if you, if you are in marketing or you're in sales or frankly in a startup, like you should be doing growth. And so like, yeah. who's on the non-growth team? Like what are those? Yeah. Like, yeah. like it just, so, so like, I, I won't go like, it's, so like, like I actually find the term like somewhat offensive as like a marketer mm-hmm. and like that has frankly, I feel like driven a fair amount of growth. So yeah. like, it just like everyone should be that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, if you're in this room and don't consider yourself as part of the growth team at drift, it's like, it's like, what are you doing here? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that so, should be the April, Fool's campaign. You launched a non-growth team inside of Cyber. Yes, <laughs> that actually would be good. See if you were a sales and marketing company. Maybe that's a good idea. Oh, you guys yeah. should get on that in the next go. day. No, my, I'll, I'll, uh, do, I'll do a testimonial for you. Yeah, let's yeah. record that. Yeah, we'll do that. I'm yeah. trying to generate leads. I don't have time for April Fools right now. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to measure that, Dave? <laughs> uh, one, we'll just do one, one or two more. Well. So uh, when you talk about maintaining culture, uh, anybody can write a book with you post your values and whatnot. Are there, you mentioned systems, maybe to avoid certain behaviors internally, maybe it's internal messaging, reminding people what your values are. What, what are the things you kind of help spot actually help that culture scale? Yeah. More so than just a living adopt. How do you how do you actually make sure culture scales other than writing a wiki post with your values on it? Like, what are the tactical things you can actually do with people inside your company? So, I think there's, um, I think it depends on what part of the culture you're looking to support. But I'll give you like a couple examples. So, one is definitely you know with like awards and recognition, you should make sure that those align with your culture. Uh, you know, at Cyber Reason, we've been going through a lot of this like better defining our culture and things like that, and and teamwork is kind of one of the core elements. And we gave some awards to individual people in the last company meeting, 
And, you know, somebody mentioned to me, they're like, oh, does that really embody teamwork? And I'm like, you know, it's, it's funny. The people we picked actually exhibited very good teamwork skills, but we didn't highlight that when we gave the award and said, oh, this person did this project and they worked really well with these other groups to get it done and whatever. We didn't say that. So it's like the awards were sort of in keeping with the culture, but we didn't like use the language to describe it that way. Um, I'll give you the second one, which is like um, at HubSpot, transparency was always a, a big part of the culture. And the way transparency works at 10 people is everyone hears everything that everyone's doing. And the way it works at, you know, 35 people is there's kind of, you know, like you guys have today, it's like there's some buzz around the office and you mostly hear about what's going on. The way that works at 500 people with people in six offices around the world is not like you overhear what's going Mm -hmm. on. So you have to put in better systems like use a wiki and have maybe even someone curating the wiki and finding the best posts and sending those to people. Like you need to, you need to have systems that support transparency, like as the company grows. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I think the 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 idea is that you have a core value of transparency or teamwork or whatever it is but the way you do that in the company needs to change and adapt so you're that way you're making sure the way the company works is what changes not what the culture is if that makes sense so it's like you need to look at what your cultural values are and figure that out over time and like it's also very good to have people like at DC and Liz and other people that have seen those growth paths that um, they can draw from those experiences and sort of know like when the culture is going to break. And when do you think is the right time to define the culture? I, I'm not sure you can the, do it too. Cycle. I'm not sure you can do it too early. Mm-hmm. Like it might be a waste of time when you're three or five people, but I think mm-hmm. 10 or 12 to start to think about it because what you want to make sure is that the people you're bringing in the door and hiring meet those criteria. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that it's, um, uh, when the founders are still interviewing everyone, they're naturally doing it. Yep. But as, maybe as soon as like they're no longer interviewing every single person or something like that, maybe and because you need to figure out a way to get that stuff out of your head and into other people's heads mm-hmm. in kind of like a, a way that they can enforce it with the new hires, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think one mistake That's, I made adrift was we probably spent too much time trying to talk about it and think about it at that three to five stage, mm, right? Too yeah. early. And it's yeah. definitely better later. Once you have some some people and some patterns and, you know, part of the culture kind of emanates from the, from that early team. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe, yeah. And you're right. Maybe because like the first, like the next five people you hire, their DNA and who they are sort of affects that culture a little bit. So mm-hmm. you might, you might, you might not even know what it is at three or four people, Yep. but at 10 or 12, you probably do. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Interesting. Yeah. One more. One more. Kara. Um, so we're talking about scaling, and was there anything that you did at HubSpot from an early stage that traditionally wouldn't scale, but you felt was really important to keep as you continue to grow? What's something that didn't scale that you scaled? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the question you said. Was that I think. Question? I mean, I think. So I think the there were a lot of things we did in the early days that didn't scale, like having your head of sales knock on doors to try to get customers, <laughs> right? Or having the head of marketing do all the demos. Um, but you learn a lot from that process, right? Now, those were not things that we ended up keeping. So I think your question is like, is there anything we did that didn't scale that you ended up keeping? Um, maybe some of the interviews. I mean, at 100 people, for and I, I, we were hiring even just in marketing 50 people a year. I was still interviewing every single one. Um, that's not... 
I would I would say most people would say, well, that's not the right way to scale. So that that was something that I felt like it, it required my own attention, and I think that you know even in a, who knows how big that can scale to like practically, but I think even a couple hundred person team, I would still want to interview all the new hires. Like I think I don't know that might that might be the one thing that would maybe stick out for me. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Mike. Give it up for oh, Mike. Give it up. Thanks for having me. <laughs>